today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, subscribe. And coming up on today's show, big Liberal caucus meeting over the weekend, getting ready for the next election. Are the Liberals ready? Also, we're seeing Donald Trump's terminology on the wall soften quite a bit. Are these two sides closer than what we think? And gas stations on the increase in Ontario. What does that say? It's all coming up on the podcast. Thanks for listening. Liberal caucus meetings in Ottawa. The Prime Minister rallying the troops. Says that the MPs need positivity in this uh, upcoming election. You might remember Sunny Ways was a big uh, theme for the last. Can he do the same thing this time? To talk more about all of this, Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, uh, Summa Strategies, and has advised uh, many political leaders of such and is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good to talk to you again, Scott. I think you know, the Prime Minister doesn't want division and, and positivity. Wasn't it Friday you and I were talking about that candidate of his, former candidate of his in D.C., who wasn't sort of eschewing those values? And uh, does this distract from the real problems at hand? Can you, can you sunny ways yourself again to a second election? Well, maybe, uh, but but I think there you've described it. Look, these winter caucus meetings as they come into a session, whether they're, I mean, Andrew sure did the town hall up your way uh, on the weekend as well, too. They're all about setting the frame for the return of Parliament and getting your team psyched up. So Parliament comes back next Monday. Caucus is here a week beforehand to get a sense of what it's going to look like. You use the, the, the first day, as the prime minister did, to motivate the troops, get the messages out that you want to get out that separate you and you believe can help separate you from from the opposition. I mean, it's uh, hardly surprising, of course, Stephen Harper's name made it back in. They're still the Stephen Harper's conservatives. So yeah, it's also about changing the channel from your own troubles. And the liberal government is calculating that, look, yeah, people may be frustrated with the prime minister and there may be a lot of anxiety out there, but uh, he's still better and more likable than uh, than what the conservatives have on offer, et cetera. So that's what they're trying to do right now. It's a channel changer and a group motivating exercise. So, uh, again, we remember the Sunny Ways campaign of the first and, and, and selling divisiveness uh, and, and, or selling uh, the opposition as, as divisive and such. And, you know, that's certainly easy to do. But in a world where we are today, can you just keep saying that? Is, is, he, a, is he a prime minister who is overpromised, underdelivered? Uh, like many before him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he's certainly overpromised in some areas. Uh, indigenous issues is, is one we've also talked about at great length. Um, but he, he, he will continue to repeat the messages that he did to his caucus, uh, for his caucus and the whole sunny ways mantra, if he believes they can win on it. Right. Uh, so that's the thing they're constantly testing with public opinion. Uh, is there still enough of an audience out there that likes that message, believes that message, believes the messenger? Um, also, you try and have your candidate speak from a point of his actual strength. So Trudeau, the optimist, is probably more believable to his own party and potential supporters than you know, Trudeau, the great statesman, or, or Trudeau, uh, Dower Trudeau. So 
uh, they they do a lot of uh, they spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's the best brand to sell. So that's the brand they still believe they can milk. But as you rightly ask, uh, people may be a bit more skeptical about it now, and they're going to have to work it harder and demonstrate why. Canadians should have the same optimism and give the Prime Minister the same faith they did uh, four years ago. Uh, I, I've, I've always equated the Prime Minister to a great front man in a band. I mean, he's, a, he, <laughs> he's, he's, he's great for rallying the troops and making everybody feel good. Uh, he's a great mediator, great at bringing two sides together. I remember, the, you know, uh, when the Premier of B.C. and Alberta were fighting, he was sitting there in the middle of them like, you know, a teacher in the middle of a, two kids in a sandbox and said, but, but as far as actually making the call and advancing the cause one way or the other, can you, can you keep too can, is he trying to keep too many people happy and as a result really not getting anything done yeah i mean i think that's one of his, his faults right uh i i think while his positive disposition can be an asset it can also be a bit of a fault uh, because it inflates expectations and there's no way all of the expectations can be met that he's built up so the election is going to be a scorecard about that to a certain degree. Prime Minister, you said you were going to do X, Y, and Z. Well, you've only got part of X done and none of that. Is that enough? Uh, but it's, it's a bit like the town halls. The, the government believes and the prime minister himself believes in polling data reinforces that Justin Trudeau still runs ahead of the Liberal Party. He still remains their greatest asset. Um, it's a, an area of comfort and strength for him, so he's going to stick with it. What about biggest challenges between now and the next election? Uh, well, the, the next few months are going to be very challenging, right? Uh, he said it in his words to caucus. There's a lot of economic anxiety out in the country, whether it's the yellow vests in the West or indigenous people from the West to the East or Atlantic Canadians who want to see some resource development happen, particularly in New Brunswick. He's got to manage that he can't have them all sort of unify under one banner and that banner be changed so his budget whenever that comes presumably sometime in february or march will be a key moment for the government and how they sell it will be important uh, as that will send a message to what they're hearing and how they're responding so you know, with each passing day, uh, his level of vulnerability for re-election increases. Right now, I think I've said this to you before, he'd still be the odds-on favorite to win. Um, but uh, it's not so smooth sailing out there. Uh, so he uh, he seems to be trying to signal that, too. If the Liberals get too cocky and too... Um, aware of their self-aware and or not self-aware, and they believe their own press clippings about their perceived invincibility, then they're going to have a lot of trouble. So they're going to have to watch that, and they're going to have to watch mistakes of their own making. It was this time last year that that ill-fated India trip came, and that was about the time the needle really started to move for the first time against the prime minister. So they need to guard against India trip-like mistakes on a go-forward basis. 
Uh, they say uh, or would allude to the fact that the the right is sort of fear mongering and, and sells the negative, uh, whereas they sell the positive and everything's great. Um, but at what point do, do do Canadians feel, you know, this guy's kind of making it sound like everything's great. And I don't know, over here, it seems to be that there's a fire burning and, and, and not much seems to be done about that. Uh, at what point does the positivity get confused for lack of action or 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 you know let's take it for an issue like immigration he he may not be soft on it but if he appears so soft then that gives rise to the opposite exactly or, or even look at a more a more tangible one you can point to immigration is tangible i guess if you're looking to immigrate to canada and or you feel you're going to lose your job to somebody and that's an anxiety that exists who's newly arrived in canada look at that pipeline uh, so Canada owns that big pipeline in the West. It, As we know, everything has been stalled at the moment because of the court decision. They're trying to find a new buyer. They're trying to get people back to work, or so they say. If that pipeline isn't uh, working or construction hasn't been renewed and people don't go back to work building it and, and, and the oil isn't able to flow through it, uh, in the foreseeable future, there is a clear indication of questioning the sunny ways rhetoric, questioning this whole balance argument that the government is making about its commitment to energy and the environment. I think at different, par- at different parts of the country, people will look to that example. In downtown Toronto or Hamilton, where you are, they might say, hey, yeah, I'm not really comfortable with that immigration. Or I saw a story that suggested individuals who had newly arrived in Canada were doing something they shouldn't have or receiving money that maybe I think should go to me. Hmm, I don't like that. I'm mad at the government. I'm going to express that in October uh, because that's when I can't. So those are the things you ought to, to watch for, and they are watching for. What does the opposition have to do in order to get noticed, in order to um, cloud over his sunny ways? Well, they, when he makes mistakes, they they have to make sure they can fully take advantage of them by also not getting in the way if they're still playing themselves out. Uh, they all also need to offer some uh, some of their own visions and plans. I mean, as it relates to the conservatives, I think just talk about the environment for a minute. Uh, they can be carbon tax. Carbon tax is bad. Carbon tax uh, is costing you more money. Carbon tax is killing jobs. But they need to say, all right, uh, here's what we would do on climate change, because there's a lot of public opinion research that says people do still want some action on climate change. So you have to offer a counter narrative. With the NDP, well, the first thing they have to do is win that by-election in Burnaby Douglas. And let me interrupt you there real quick, Tim. If uh, With what's happened with the Karen Wang controversy and the, and, and the Liberal candidate in that by-election, has that done anything for Jagmeet Singh to raise his profile? Well, they're not spending much time talking about Singh. I mean, if anything, it may make it easier for him to win. So if that and and that allows him to raise his profile and say he's got a notch on his belt now as a winner, and he doesn't have to play a defense game about keeping his job because he couldn't win that by election. Uh, is that pretty much it for him, though? He's got a long road ahead of him. Yeah, I mean, they have to carve out some space. I mean, the Liberals, I suspect, are going to tack again a little bit to the left uh, because that's where there's a greater pool of voters for them. So you know, where is Singh going to find voters? It's not clear uh, because every just about every issue he's waded into, uh, he's found himself in, in 
contravention of NDP views or unable to articulate a clear view or making an outright mistake. So the NDP probably have the hardest slog of anybody to carve out a voting pool uh, among a broader swath of voters uh, because most of the gains they've made in 2011 seem to be uh, sliding and if not in outright retreat or people aren't running because they don't have confidence in this leader or they want to do something else. Uh, One last question. How important is the pipeline issue? Can Trudeau get it built? I think the pipeline's key in the West uh, might make a difference between them keeping and losing some seats, albeit they don't have tons of them. That's why, as we said the other day, they're focusing on Quebec. Uh, I think it's vital for the Western economy, vital to to bring some quiet uh, or or calm uh, among uh, some of the provinces out there who are raging full-on war with the prime minister, and it's vital for people, uh, people who want to get back to work. Uh, So I think it's important. Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. Tim, thank you so much for your time. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting, over the weekend in uh, U.S. politics, more chatter about the shutdown and uh, Donald Trump uh, trying to make a deal there uh, and and sort of uh, deal around the wall, per se. It didn't look like that was going to happen. And also... Uh, interesting comments coming from uh, the Democrats. Uh, House Democrats uh, plan to use their new legislative powers to investigate whether the Canadian border is properly resourced and staffed. Uh, so much focus lately on the southern border and the crisis and whatever it is that's happening down there. Uh, the Democrats are concerned about what's happening in, in, in security at the northern border, which is odd because this isn't the big bad Republicans. This is the left. This is the Democrats that are concerned about the northern border. To talk more about all of this, Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and he is with us now. Thanks so much for the time, Michael. Greatly appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So are you surprised that this is coming up now? Are you surprised it's coming up uh, now that the House has is, is turned largely to, or is Democrat? Uh, specifically the northern border? No. Yes. No, I, I'm not surprised by that. I figured at some point they would discuss this issue. Uh, maybe I'm a little surprised that it was the Democrats who initiated it, but I think what they're probably trying to do is they're probably trying to counter the Republican position at the South so they'll go off and take the North. I know that sounds a little bit silly, but it's a counter-opinion that they think might be able to sell in their neck of the woods. Uh, Lou Correa, who's involved with the Democrats, is representative of the Democrats, he is actually, from what I understand, among a number of Democrats who've been looking at various reports that have come out over the past few months, and you may have actually discussed it on your show, where they have had videos sort of showing that the Canadian-American border at certain parts is it's pretty easy to sort of cross over. You can stop a car at certain points around Quebec, and you can almost literally just walk over. Virtually nobody is paying attention. There's these little open sections. Now, I'm not saying that that's something to be frightened about, nor am I saying that that's something we should be spending, you know, you know, millions of hours agonizing over. But at the same time, it, you know, it was always there for the taking. If the United States wanted to discuss an issue like that, obviously their main, their, you know, the main concern for them, at least for Donald Trump and for uh, most Republicans and a few Democrats, has always been the southern border because of the problems with Mexico. 
But yeah, I mean, as a counter-opinion, I'm not shocked that eventually it made its way into the conversation. Could it be that if you focus too much attention on the northern border, that means that all issues have to be uh, addressed? And and at this point, are there more people leaving the United States to come here? Uh, You know, we've certainly seen what happens through the holes in the fence here. Yeah. Um, uh, So is it people leaving? Are they concerned about people leaving rather than entering? So in other words, this isn't an issue for us. More are leaving than are coming in. A bit. I mean, obviously, this is still pretty fresh, and we don't have, um, you know, a proper form or at least a proper plan as to what they plan to look after. In other words, what they're really concerned about. But yes, I would imagine it's probably more Americans walking off to Canada. Issues that we've seen probably in the past, like, say, uh, the issue over pharmaceutical drugs, where a lot of people said that, we you know, you should cross the Canadian border to get, quote-unquote, free health care. There's always been little issues that have bothered various senators and House representatives about Canada over the years. Again, not that they're sitting and agonizing about them, but they realize that there is these little flaws. Ergo, the northern border which, as you said, and I've said as well, there are some easy ports of entry. Um, It's just sort of wide open for for discussion. The Democrats as well, you know, have been the ones who've been always very frustrated about the fact that, uh, at least with issues involving trade and other things, they've always been kind of concerned, more so than the Republicans, about the way certain issues are dealt with between our two countries. If you remember early discussions of NAFTA in the 90s, a lot of people were actually concerned that American businesses would go flooding over to Canada, even though obviously there are labor laws and other things here, because there is you know, cheaper property, easier ways to build factories, etc. So the northern border has always been sort of an issue of discussion between the United States and Canada, it's just never reached this sort of a level. And I think a lot of Canadians, when they look at this issue, are going to be very surprised that anyone, be it the Democrats or otherwise, are actually tackling it. But again, based on the protectionist attitudes of a lot of Democrats from various states, I'm not shocked that it's sort of come down to this. And as to what they're worried about specifically, I'm sure we'll hear more about it, especially if Donald Trump eventually decides, as I believe he will and others will, that he's going to change his strategy about going through Congress to get the money that he needs for his border wall funding with Mexico and eventually declares at some point a quote-unquote national emergency. Uh, What is in this for the Democrats to bring this up? Is this a distraction? Does it make it look like, hey, you know, we're tough on all of this stuff too. It's just that this is overkill and there's issues up here. Um, uh, does it make them appear strong on borders? You know, because obviously with what's happening in the South, uh, Trump has 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 his view. Uh, yep. The Democrats have theirs. Whereas if they appear strong on border issues with the northern border, then that might give them more credibility discussing discussing the southern issue. Yeah, it may. You're absolutely right. Now, to be fair, the Democratic Party as a whole has not made a unified statement about the northern border. It's only been right. ribs and travels from a couple of House representatives. So I'm not going to necessarily state or right now on this program that all Democrats believe that the northern border is an area of huge security and safety concerns. Mm. But what it does show is that at least in the case of a few Democrats, they are looking at this either, again, as you and I have suggested, a distraction of some sort based on what Trump is doing with the southern border with Mexico, 
or they think that maybe this is a way to sort of try to take some of the heat off that they are receiving from their, in, within their states or from some Americans about the fact that the Democrats are not very strong when it comes to border security. So they can at least state that, well, look, we're not as concerned about Canada. We're not declaring war against them. You know, this is not, uh, you know, a revised version of the famous film John Candy did, you know, his last film, Canadian Bacon, of something of that nature. But we're obviously, you know, we still have concerns about the border. We're looking at the other side as well, and they can sort of maybe point out if they actually become stronger numbers, they could say that, well, why aren't the Republicans and Donald Trump looking at this as well? Because this is a major issue, too. So it's a bit of a distraction. I agree with you. It's probably a bit of a political game. But again, until it's a more unified front and we actually have a list of reasons why the Democrats are searching it, all we know is that a small handful of them are at least maybe right now just being playing political games and looking more towards the northern border as a possible area of discussion. Homeland Security says there's nearly 200 vacancies for Border Patrol agents along the Canadian border. Is, yep. is this border understaffed? Is it, uh, is yeah. it protected? No, it's heavily understaffed, and that's, that goes without saying. They didn't even need this report. I mean, there have been reports in the past. I mean, even the, uh, the CSBA on our side has directly said that a number of times over the years, too. When I served in the prime minister's office, that was an issue of concern. There has always been a need <clears throat> to put more border security along the northern border as well. Again, not because of wild fears of, you know, to use some of Donald Trump's lingo of, you know, uh, terrorism, gangs, crime, etc. Some of that definitely comes over. Like, we obviously do have issues with illegal weapons, crime, um, and, uh, and gangs, and other related activities. It's just not the same, obviously, with the intensity that we see on the southern border. But yeah, look, I mean, overall, I think right now, since they're on a short break, the two parties from Congress, and obviously there's a huge standstill when it comes to the partial government shutdown, which has now reached its 31st day and is still nowhere near its conclusion, this is a way to possibly get, at least on the Democrat side, a discussion started that will take the news in a different direction in a different cycle. Again, it's a very common tactic that a lot of political parties use, not even just in North America, and it gives them a bit of leeway to kind of push the whole issue of border security in different directions and make the argument maybe that, well, look, Donald Trump is worried about setting up this steel wall with, with Mexico along the southern border, which obviously we're criticizing because it won't necessarily stop everything. At the same time, the northern border has all these gaping holes, and we're not even spending a moment's notice on it. Could this all be worried about that too? Could this all backfire? The next thing you know, they're going to wall up the northern border as well. <laughs> I don't see that coming anytime soon. I don't even think it's an area that uh, that the Trump White House is even thinking about. Yes, there is, there certainly are reasons to look at it. And there certainly are reasons, as you suggested, to beef up security along the northern border. There's no question of that. The fact that we would get to the point of building a wall there, I mean, I guess in life, as we've discovered, anything is possible anymore. But it, it just seems so far-fetched at this point that that would even be an area of discussion. But again, it really just depends, as I said, not to be a broken record, if the Democrats continue to sort of grow in support of either playing a political game of distraction or there are serious concerns about the northern border 
And you could have two competing border issues going at it at the same time. But the White House, which is the main one, is only going to be focused one way, and that's the southern border. Uh, You can really see Donald Trump has changed his use of terminology and and what he says in Around the Wall. We noticed this uh, when I was watching over the course of the weekend and and him saying, it's not like we're going to, and I'm paraphrasing here because I can't remember exactly what he said, but something along the lines of, it's not like we're going to build a, it's not like we were going to build a concrete wall from east to west, from coast to coast. And it's like, well, I think that's exactly what a lot of his supporters thought. And now he's very much stepping back from all of that uh, and now saying you know it could be a fence could be steel slats could you know and and even uh this weekend said not in all parts of the border only on certain well that's exactly what everyone else is saying so at what point do these two sides come together because although the president isn't giving in and saying uncle man his terminology has really changed in the last week or so yeah, it's actually been changing for a few weeks, and I don't remember yeah. if I discussed it with but you But, I mean, the first time that he ever, like, this is the first time I've ever heard him say, it's not like we're building a concrete wall from left to right. And I think, and I, yeah. I, I would, maybe I'm being naive to think this, but I'm guessing that's exactly what his supporters thought. Right, but he's also made language, and again, I, we may have discussed, and you may discuss it on your show, he's actually also said, you know, the, that the plan for moving away from a concrete wall to steel slats was the Democrats' idea. Well, mm-hmm. I don't remember any Democratic yeah, member yeah. ever stating, A, that they wanted a wall in the first place, and B, that they wanted to change it in terms of what it's going to look like on the outside. It's also been a change as well where he said that, you know, he never expected that the Mexicans were going to write some sort of a check to pay for the border wall. Yeah, but that's and what I he agree. sounds. He, yeah. No, no, he yeah. never did say check. The word was never used. But yeah. I think a lot of people, certainly in 2015 and 2016, were actually thinking that's exactly what he was actually saying. Yeah. So. I think what is really happening here is that Trump is trying at, you know, to do any sort of a deal that he thinks would make sense to get him closer to the $5.7 billion in funding that he currently needs right now or that he's asked for with respect to the border wall. I'm not surprised that eventually it's coming out that, yes, certain sections won't be opened or no, we didn't assume it was going to go from one end to the other, in, in your example, east to west. But this, unfortunately, was the same sort of problem that happened when Israel built its security wall. It did it, and then people started to take a look at it, you know, various miles, section to section, and realized that in certain parts it was protected by concrete, that was for sure, but in other parts it was just steel mesh, and that's mm-hmm. all it was, where no one was around and people could actually hop over this quote-unquote security fence. This is unfortunately what will probably also happen with the southern border wall with Mexico. Obviously, Trump is just going to focus on the fact that he's going to use steel slats and build it as much as he possibly can and then increase the border force and then ensure that that sort of works out. But there's never going to be any sort of a proposal or suggestion where a wall is going to start from point A and end at point Z. It just doesn't happen like that, A, because of the cost that's incurred in doing it, B, because of the manpower that would be involved, which, quite frankly, there isn't enough of, and C, it's just impossible to do it, because no matter what time estimate you put on it, it would take double, triple, quadruple that to even come close to accomplishing what you hope to. So in many cases, much like Donald Trump is doing, he's talking about the wall as basically in conjecture, he's basically talking about it as a large thing that's going to go from one end to the other. It's going to be, quote-unquote, a beautiful thing. Yeah. But the language is changing because people are catching him on the fact 
that now he sort of is admitting what everyone kind of thought it was, that, well, it'll be heavy and, you know, protected in nice, you know, in certain areas, but in other areas, it's barely going to be anything. So will he sell this in the end? Uh, well, a better wall is better than no wall at all. Yeah, and I think that's how he's basically yeah. going to do it. <clears throat> so are these, the si- to do it. are these two sides actually closer than what this rhetoric would have us believe? Because it sounds like they're very close, especially with, with, with Trump backtracking yeah. on terminology. Yes and no. I mean, don't forget, the Democrats already had a planned response when uh, Trump spoke on the weekend. They were already going to turn it down, and it made the argument that the things he was trying to offer out, including for the Dreamers, he had already offered before, and right. they had already rejected it. Right. So... Oh, there's a little bit of gamesmanship, much like the northern border, that's, quote unquote, that we're talking about. There's gamesmanship here as well. Um, but at the same time, I don't think they're too, too far off, at least in terms of senior leadership, because even if Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and others don't really want to say it publicly, they have in the past supported enhanced border security for the United States with Mexico. That's on the record, especially for Schumer. He's actually been taped saying it. And on the, as well, I think a lot of them realize that they have to sort of, in part, do this to appease the very left-wing Democrats that are, are supporting them, including many of them, the, the 30 or so who came in in last November's election. So they have to sort of appease them to some degree. But they also have to be realistic about it, that if they do absolutely nothing, they're going to look extremely weak on border security, which could hurt a lot of them in very close elections and could actually aid Donald Trump in 2020 during his re-election bid. So are they close? Yes, I think they're closer than publicly they're saying things and, and publicly they're, they're stating right now because they keep, want to keep sort of fighting one another to keep the country divided and keep this issue divided. But do they realize that they're going to have to reach some sort of a, a compromise position? Yes, and I think even the Trump House, White House knows this too. And at some point, something will come down that will make sense. But I don't believe it will come out to $5.7 billion for border wall funding. But it could be a lot more than people are thinking right now. Hmm. Donald Trump obviously selling Making America Great Again uh, for the people. Um, uh, obviously, there's a lot of people in the United States who aren't receiving paychecks that work for the government. Correct. He tweeted that, uh, you know, he thanks those people for all that they've done. Is that enough to save this? Uh, at what point does this just turn into a rotten apple? Well, it's already starting to. He's been losing support, <clears throat> if you believe in polls. He's dropped anywhere from five to six points in, in several polls based on the fact that most Americans are blaming him for the government shutdown. Far more than Democrats. You know, he originally said, well, you know what, I'm going to put all the blame on myself. And then he started to push it to the Democrats within a day or two of that. Um, Unsurprisingly, most Americans look to the president when it comes to a government shutdown. And they actually believe that it's the leader who should initiate the stop of a shutdown more than any of the other political players who are involved. Whether that's right or wrong is one thing, but that's kind of how it works out. So for Donald Trump... He's watching his poll numbers go down because of this government shutdown, and I think that he knows that he has to bring it to an end as quickly as possible. But again, if he doesn't get funding, or at least what people perceive to be proper funding for the border wall, he's in huge trouble because that was one of his major campaign planks in 2016. If he comes to the table during 2019 and into 2020 empty-handed, it's you know basically 
A, you'll get more Republicans running against him for the GOP nomination because they might as well take a chance, and B, it will aid the Democrats heavily because it will show that for all the promises and all the guarantees that Donald Trump makes, he couldn't even get money for the one thing that he really said he stood for, and that was a border wall. So, no, one way or the other, it has to be done. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, thank you so much. Much appreciated. Have a great week. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked to Dan McTagg on this show on a very regular basis, trying to find truth and justice when it comes to uh, uh, pipelines and getting our resources to market and balancing all of that with the need to do the right thing and be leaders when it comes to renewable energy and, and all that other sort of stuff. Uh, and, and, you know, we've seen uh, trends go one way. We've seen them go swing back the other. Right now we're in a situation where gas prices are relatively low uh, for all the wrong reasons, of course, but that doesn't seem to have, <laughs> people don't seem to care about that uh, as long as they're low. Um, that being said, uh, we've seen trends change as a result of that increased interest in larger vehicles, um, you know, electric vehicles don't seem to take off unless they're heavily subsidized. And now we're seeing, uh, after years and years that the number of gas stations were declining, now we're seeing an increase. What does this mean? Uh, is this just another reason that, you know, gas prices are cheap? We're building more gas stations. They're building more trucks. All the more reason to put more carbon taxes on your price of, of fossil fuel energy and just tax these people into oblivion. Tax us into changing our behavior. It's so expensive, you'll never, ever, ever buy a truck. Is that the answer? Uh, Dan McTagg is with us, former liberal MP and consumer affairs critic, analyst, GasBuddy.com. He's with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, good to be here, Scott. And so, happy uh, new week. <laughs> yeah, and... and this, I remember talking to you about this and specifically about refinery capacity and how we've given all uh, a lot of that up uh, in this province over time. Uh, what's the scenario with gas stations? Are they declining? Have they been declining steadily until recently? Well, they've changed the nature uh, of their operations. Uh, no longer are gas stations really standalone gas stations, and certainly not like they were 30 years ago where they were. you went there to change your tires, to have your car repaired. Uh, they're really basically service centers that with a uh, greater emphasis on uh, convenience um, and selling things in store that have a margin to make off make or off uh, you know really make up and offset the losses uh, that most incur here uh, you know Hamilton Niagara region at any given time I mean I was there uh, this weekend at the uh, uh, tournament ice tournament uh, for my daughters who were playing in the uh, tournament there and of course uh, Notice a lot of gas stations selling in the 96.6 range. Uh, and of course, you know, knowing full well that the price at which they're buying their gasoline, best case scenario, was about 91 cents a liter. So at five cents a liter, can you make a go of it? Um, no, you can't, especially when half the purchases might be done with credit card that takes three cents away. So now you're down to three cents a liter. You better be selling a lot of uh, beef jerky to make up the difference. So uh, is this stat deceiving in the sense that it's not so much that there's more gas stations, it's that there's more convenience outlets with gas stations attached to them? 
Well, there have been a proliferation of gas stations uh, here and there as, as populations have grown. But we have to remind ourselves that throughout the 1990s, through what I call price inversions, but let's call it what it was, uh, you know, uh, the major wholesale, the big refiners were kicking the living snot out of independent gas retailers. And uh, in my region in Toronto, they lost. Most of the independents were basically uh, shown the door and exited the market. Now, those who survived uh, happened to uh, do very well. Here I'm thinking several uh, gas brands that, uh, you know, were able to uh, to hold on to what they had. And then, of course, we had what I call pseudo-independence. Um, I saw an article this weekend uh, in The Spectator uh, regarding companies like Pioneer, which uh, was run by the Hogarth family for many years. Yep. It was independent originally, but then it was 50% bought by Sunoco, Suncor. So, you know, although they call themselves independent, they were half owned by a major wholesaler. And it's that same company now owned by Parkland that has a pretty strong connection with one of the biggest refiners in the country, Petro-Canada Suncor. Of course, they have their own refinery as well. And the landscape is changing, as I mentioned. Uh, many of the big box stores, Costco being, you know, the most notable. But right. it's not just Costco. You know, Esso, a rather... Um, uh, Loblaws many years ago got in the business of, uh, of of trying to sell gasoline using gasoline really as a loss leader. Well, the same model for Costco, where they offer gasoline today for ninety cents a liter. Canadian Tire does the same thing, yeah, yeah. So they're buying it pretty much the same price they're uh, they're they're picking it up for. But you know, con- certainly confident in the knowledge that you know you're paying them an annual fee. You don't have to. They don't have to honor a credit card except their own. And of course, uh, you know whatever they might be losing selling gasoline as a convenience, uh, they're picking up in the store. Uh, the Canadian Independent Petroleum Marketers Association says that this discussion really lies at the refinery level. We have talked about that many times that we have no capacity here. Yeah, you know, I, I know SIPMA and I knew ERGMA. I, when, in my time, when I wrote the book on the plight of independent gas retailers, try to change the Competition Act, the independent gasoline stations were definitely uh, uh, the view that the refineries had a stranglehold on them. But uh, the volatility that you see at the pumps going from 95 cents a liter in the morning to or in the evening to nine, to a dollar five isn't refineries. <laughs> so, you know, pu- pulling these numbers out of their, their hats, I think, is a little disingenuous. But I'll leave that to them. They're no longer the organization they once were, and most of them are mo- most happy to work with each other. Uh, I don't see any difference between SIPMA and uh, uh, the Canadian Fuels Association representing the big majors because they're really intertwined to, to the extent that even the big players like Imperial Oil no longer own their gas stations. They've uh, rightly many years ago, uh, five, six years ago, sold all of them either to Parkland or to Couchetard, uh, which of course is Becker's Max Milk, uh, and you'll know this. And why would they do that? Because there's, uh, well, there's no money. Why, yeah. why schlep gasoline when you're, uh, you know, you're, an, you're, a, you're a, a refiner. You're buying your gas, your right. oil for 40 cents a liter. You're able to get 60, 55, 60 cents. You're making 15, 16 cents Selling yeah. gasoline to your competitor, why do you want to compete against uh, Costco? Why if have bricks and mortar, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the point. So you sell it off to someone else who does very well at the convenience side. Uh, and any, anybody knows the logic. Uh, if you go to Costco and buy a 28 case of, uh, of, of water, uh, you know, you're going to pay a buck ninety nine for 28, and then you see them on an individual unit, not necessarily the same brand, for about a dollar nine to a dollar twenty nine. Uh, that's where the money's made. But it's not, it's a hard way to make things up. And I, I suspect that uh, you don't see this practice in the United States. You certainly don't see it in Britain. You don't see it in Australia because they actually have strong competition law, unlike Canada, where much of the Competition Act that we have, and it's an old mantra that I've had, uh, was written by the very people it was meant to police, settled the Imperial Oil way back uh, in 1986. So this industry has greatly changed in the last 20 years in Ontario. 
It has. Uh, there's been an exit of uh, many players. Yes, there are new stations, to be sure. But it's it's telling that, you know, just in the past couple of weeks, when the article appeared in the Hamilton Spectator, Tom Hoke's uh, article on the weekend, mm-hmm. um, you know, I did that interview with him maybe five, six weeks ago. And now he tried to call me back. It was just too busy. But the reality is that uh, there's been tectonic changes just in the past six weeks. You have now the Shell refinery, Shell Canada, wanting to sell its refinery in Sarnia and wanting to sell that terminal that it has in Hamilton and wanting to sell, you know, really, uh, you know, much of its uh, distribution throughout uh, much of the country as they're trying to focus on their new priorities, which is U.S. shale, uh, LNG, uh, and to some extent even their smaller holdings in the Canadian oil sands. Uh, at the same time, Husky, you know, which was used as sort of a, a go uh, a backup because of the problems that were created when Parkland, when uh, uh, CST and uh, um, Couchard, uh, Couchard bought up CST and it created the specter or the prospect of far too great concentration, not just among gas stations, but among convenience store based gas stations. So you now have Husky saying, hey, we want to have the business too. And they did this within 24 hours of each other. Uh, those to me are very significant warning signs. And they do suggest that uh, uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, most notably, the Canadian government, uh, we touched on this last uh, conversation you and I had last week, has brought in its uh, new Clean Fuel Standards Act. You know, if I'm a refinery, I don't want to be de- dealing with that kind of nonsense, having to invest billions of dollars. I'm, I'd be better just simply sell off my refineries to some other schmuck who wants to buy it, and uh, they can put up with all the regulatory nonsense that Ottawa wants to shove down uh, their throats. Is this further fodder for those that think we need to be taxed into oblivion? The prices are still low. People are buying trucks, gas stations, the number uh, on the increase, uh, more availability. Is this further proof? And I'm playing devil's advocate here, obviously, that, you know, uh, those on the left will say we've got to tax people into oblivion. So they change the behavior. Well, what behavior you're trying to change that the automotive industry isn't already doing? Uh, I got to tell you, it's, uh, you know, no amount of taxation here in Canada is going to change the way a model of vehicle is being built uh, and, of course, the efficiency and emissions. But I can tell you that most vehicle manufacturers are getting away from sedans. They're moving to SUVs and low and, 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 you know, uh, higher platform vehicles. That's that's public uh, 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 choice. Uh, but let's not forget the significant reductions in, uh, in, in fuel efficiency and mileage uh, that is now being earned uh, with uh, vehicles and engines that are far better than anything we've had before. And we'll continue to see this kind of improvement. But, you know, these are, uh, these are changes taking place in the United States, which uh, last time I checked doesn't have a carbon tax and doesn't, uh, but they do have smart regulations, which, you know, are encouraging the government. Uh, and manufacturers to move in a certain direction. And we are, you know, we have to be in sync with the U.S. We can't continue to think we're trendy and be cute. Otherwise, we'll lose businesses. It's called carbon leakage. Uh, so, yeah, there's people out there who uh, think that, uh, uh, you know, the old-fashioned practice of bloodletting uh, is a good way to cure the patient. Uh, I think we have to look before we leap, and we're not doing that here in Canada. Hmm. How does the Trans Mountain Pipeline being built change this discussion? Well, I think it changes it in a number of ways. Uh, the discussion is uh, Canada has bent over backwards. Um, you know, we have capped our emissions. We've we continue to be leaders in stewardship of uh, of, of products that are uh, that are very much necessary. But also at the same time, we have remediation in which we are second to none, uh, in which we are uh, imposing on ourselves a carbon tax, and yet we have not a single. Uh, you know, not a single pipeline built under this government uh, who has taken the position that you can have it 
both ways uh, who come around with this nonsense that uh, you can have an economy environment going hand in hand. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. You only have to talk to the 125,000 people in Alberta who've lost their jobs and the tens of billions of dollars that have fled the country. Uh, people have voted with their with their pocketbooks. And unfortunately, uh, I think that uh, we, we tend to think of these things uh, and the, the, the pipeline issue as being something that uh, we don't really, you know, it would be good if we all just sort of stood together. But even our Indigenous people, uh, the vast majority, want these things to happen and are being, uh, you know, stymied themselves. But even natural gas, which is designed to reduce the world's dependence on things like uh, coal, uh, you know, we're even at that point we're being blocked. And now, of course, I, uh, <laughs> an epiphany happened in the past few days where the CBC, Wendy Mesley, ran a show showing that uh, what we've all known. You've got some pretty big, heavy-duty funded organizations like the Rockefellers, mm. like Hewlett Packard. You'll never find a Hewlett Packard product in my house, by the way. Um, whose foundations have gone uh, significantly towards zeroing their money towards uh, blocking Canadian oil and Canadian oil only. So, I mean, it really comes back to it: is Trans Mountain? Trans Mountain is a litmus test, uh, but the federal government has pretty much made sure that it does not want to build any more pipelines. If it had done so, why would they bring in such vague and irrelevant language? Uh, into the Bill C-69 that they intend to foist on any future generation. So, of course, uh, now we have to deal with economic dislocation and potentially constitutional dislocation. I think it's going to get a lot worse for Canada before we get out of the woods here. Uh, obviously, uh, the situation uh, between Trudeau and, and Indigenous communities uh, tense because of this, even though uh, along the route, uh, those communities have agreed to this, which I always found odd that indigenous communities along the pipeline are all for it, but then those in other locations aren't. And that seems to be what kills the pipeline moving forward. That being said, there's been lots of, ch- of chatter of, uh, about indigenous ownership. Why doesn't, is that a possibility? Is that the prime minister's answer, you know, sort of killing two birds with one stone here? Uh, it might be, but I mean, I, I don't think anybody really cares who owns it as long as we get it built. But I think at the end of the day, uh, our indigenous people are going to be, uh, aren't, not only are they used now, but I think it's going to become pretty clear that they're going to face the same uh, prospects and the same problems. The, our institutions in Canada, particularly our legal system, is wide open to anybody using the courts to successively block any type of pipeline. You also have the federal government introducing uh, you know what I think to be uh, deliberately obfuscational language in Bill C-69 to ensure that no future pipeline gets built. Uh, and, of course, you have no will, no leadership. Uh, and despite the uh, the nice hair and calm words and kind remarks, uh, you know, as we saw in St. Catharines the other day where he doesn't answer the questions, the reality is that I think our Indigenous people are going to be next ones to f- suffer the fate, direct fate, of uh, international NGOs, uh, environmental organizations, pouring in millions of dollars to uh, undermine uh, even their aspirations, not just at the... Uh, uh, ownership, but also being able to make a pipeline, any pipeline viable. And that includes, uh, you know, the Eagle Spirit pipeline, uh, which would go to Kitimat. Uh, that would include any natural gas pipeline, such as the uh, the one that was, uh, there had to be a dismantling a couple of weeks ago that created all sorts of fuel only on one side. And of course, Trans Mountain itself. Uh, you know, again, the, uh, the decks, uh, I have to say the, uh, the fix is in and it's uh, made, been made no more obvious than by the actions of this particular government, a liberal government, which, as you know, I've been a member of for many, many, many years. I'm, I'm frankly appalled uh, that they've had a pass on this up to this point. 
Will the prime minister have to show some sort of progress on Trans Mountain before the election? Or will can he just carry this through with it all being in a holding pattern? Mm-hmm. Well, he's got Trans Mountain as a problem on the West and the East. He's got a problem with carbon taxes. Uh, you know, when I hear reports this morning that most Canadians and a good number of families are struggling that a $200 burden a month would put them over uh, or under really their uh, their financial abilities, uh, I think an extra tax, uh, and certainly one that will be far more than what you're being rebated, will just about do, uh, will be the straw, I think, that, break the camels, that breaks the camel's back. I think uh, for the carbon tax being imposed in New Brunswick, a province that is uh, that is desperate for, for work, has seen significant declines in, in its economy. A province like Ontario that rejected a carbon tax or its equivalent, a cap and trade. And for provinces like Manitoba and Saskatchewan, who don't find it funny at all, uh, I suspect that this is going to be uh, high noon, and it could be coming a lot quicker than you think. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic and analyst, GasBuddy.com. Dan, thanks as always for the time. Much appreciated. Good to be here. Thanks, Scott. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.